Welcome to Tech Junior. Hey, everybody. Uh, we have a, a cool show today. Um, we are talking about testing with Gil Tayar. Uh, Gil is a developer for Apple Tools and has been a proponent of testing for a long, long time. Uh, definitely a senior developer. And so he shares his knowledge with us about testing and the types of testing um, and how to do that with Node and a little bit of front-end development. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy it and learn a little bit about testing, which is uh, something that usually makes everybody shiver and shudder a little bit. Uh, if you want to support the show, please go to our site at techjr.dev and click subscribe. Uh, and then tweet us at techjrpodcast. Leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Anything you can do to spread the word is appreciated. Welcome to Tech Junior. Uh, my name is Lee Warwick, full stack JavaScript developer. Have with me, as always, Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie. I'm front end developer. <laughs> and we've got with us Gil. Uh, is it Tayar or Tayar? Or... Tayar, yep, yep. Good. So I was kind of close. Um, <laughs> yeah, Gil uh, works with um, Apple Tools and does a lot of work with uh, Node and microservices and, and testing. So we wanted to uh, to ask him a lot of questions today. But first off, Gil, if you could just introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about what you do. Sure, uh, and, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um what do I do? Well, uh, theoretically, I'm called an, an architect, um, and I have to add senior because I'm like 32 years in in, in the in in this uh, you know at, in software development, so everything is senior with wow. me. Uh, yeah, well, uh, architect is is well, you know, I mostly write code all day because I that's what I love to do. I'll probably die writing code or, or something. Uh, but an architect is someone that has a more of an overview over the thing. So I took a project, the, the visual grid, we'll talk about that. Uh, and, and I showed it from start to, to, and I took it, you know, from start to end architecture, design, coding, the CI CD around it, the whole shebang, uh, um, and, and coded it. So uh, that's what an architect does, does the whole thing, uh, from start to end. So uh, th that's me, uh, architect at Apple Tools. I came here two years ago because, well, testing is my passion. It, it always was uh, from like 2000 or something like that. Uh, and um, some guy, some some uh, friend of mine uh, um, uh, told me about Apple Tools and I come and they have this special project for me and I'm telling them, what are you doing? And they said, well, we do visual testing. And I said, yeah, but that doesn't work. Uh, I tried it. It doesn't work. And they showed me how uh, their product actually does work. And I was like, boom, well, this is this is great. This is where I want to be. Um, and, and here I am two years after uh, still happy and, and having lots of lots of back end fun. With <laughs> what uh, what do you mean by visual testing? Ah, um, well, most of the testing developers do, and, and that includes me, especially if you're backend. Actually, if you're backend, you don't care. Um, because nothing you do has a visual component to it. You're not, you know, um, generating any HTML, CSS, or whatever. Uh, but front-end developers, whether mobile or web, usually front-end is, is web, but I'm also including mobile. I mean, a lot of what they do is, is visual. 
uh, how the page looks like, how the styles look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody's testing that. Um, nobody's testing that at all. And uh, that is what visual testing is. Not testing how the application works, but rather, uh, or functions, but rather test how testing how the application looks like. So a functional test would test that the button works as expected. It doesn't care whether but the button looks good. A visual test doesn't care whether the button works. It only cares that the button looks good. So that's visual testing. Um, it's been a problem till now, and, and, and I can outline, uh, you know, the problems around that. But, uh, and, and we need a lot of firepower to solve those problems. But applitals, uh, but visual testing is becoming more and more common because we have that firepower. And Applitools has, has uh, the tool that, you know, that enables us to do uh, visual testing. Yeah, front-end testing and just kind of like testing UI has just been a notoriously difficult thing to do, right? Oh, it, it, it's it's a huge problem. When I, I worked at Wix like uh, five years ago, started working at Wix, and I, I did mostly back-end stuff, but then suddenly I switched to front-end for various reasons. And I was like, okay, how do we test this? I don't know. Uh, nobody does front end testing. Uh, how, how do we, how do we test front end code? Luckily, um, we worked with, we, we, we decided on working with React and React is really, really amenable to, to, uh, to testing. So we built this whole methodology of, of testing. We, we can talk about that later or, or now. I, I don't know. Uh, and it worked except for the visual part, which I, you know, figured out later with API tools, but uh, it, it is possible today. There is a methodology. If you follow, there are a lot of thought leaders around that. I think the biggest is uh, Ken Dodds, but follow Gleb Bahmudov, <laughs> uh, follow Kevin Lamping, follow me. Uh, I also talk about front-end <laughs> testing. Um, and it, it's new. It's fairly, but, but, but the methodology is there. The tooling is finally there. And, and at Wix, I can, I can definitely say that we had like a hundred percent coverage, really, really good testing around, around, uh, around our front end components and around our front end application. And it's there, it's there, it's coming, but, and, and it's there. And yay, finally, finally we have the so, ability to so, do testing uh -huh. like, like the back end people do. So, uh, I was going to say backing up just a second. Um, you said that you worked at Wix, uh, you're currently at Apple tools, uh, are both of those companies in Israel where you're at? Yep, uh, both in Israel, both in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is the main hub of uh, of of, of um, high tech life in, in Israel. There's also Haifa, Jerusalem, Beersheba, oh, other cool. places, but yeah. Tel Aviv but... is the main hub for that. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, I would imagine that um, you would do a lot of front end and visual testing with Wix because that's pretty much what that product is, right? You're building out like UI elements with the platform, so you would have to make sure that that looks good, right? Exactly. I mean, a lot of what Wix does is is front end, but you know, behind the scenes, there's huge amounts of of back end. We're talking hundreds of microservices. I'm not sure if they're not into thousands of microservices. I'm I'm talking microservices types, not instances. Uh, and, uh, but, but yeah, a lot of that is front end. And when I got the front end, uh, work, um, we, we have to test. I, I can't, I can't think of writing a, a real project, not a hobby project and, and not testing it. That's weird for me today. 
Eddie, did you have something that you wanted to ask? No, I was just curious because um, where I work now, we were required to write unit tests. Mm, for, good. Like, so, okay. Yeah, I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Because in uh, the talk I, I, I watched you do at a, a React thing conference i forgot what uh react what next yeah yeah okay yeah that um you said something about um testing make it unit test felt like you were testing nothing true and, uh, yeah because that's how it felt to me too when, when i <laughs> have to write some of this like mocking all this data and then testing that and then i don't feel like i'm actually testing the function that i'm trying to test yeah yeah um, so maybe we can you, walk it back a little bit and just yeah. go over like maybe retread a little ground from that talk, which we'll definitely link on the show notes, but uh, yeah, just kind of cool. outlining what unit testing, integration testing, and end-to-end testing even means and why yeah. we should care about it. The pyramid. Uh, oh, yes, the yeah. Pyramid. Uh, <laughs> the pyramid or the diamond, but I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, uh, caveat, uh, every, everybody talks about these types of testing, unit integration, end-to-end, acceptance, component, functional, service, and or whatever, the system. Nobody knows what they mean. I mean, you can talk to two guys, two people talk about testing and the same tests, and they're talking about totally different things. Uh, I think unit is the most, you know, thing that people tend to agree on, but even there, it's like, uh, hazy, but unit is where you take one unit, whether it be a, a you know a function, or if you're doing OOP then a class, or if you're in JavaScript world maybe a module or a package, and you take that function or a unit or whatever, and you give it input, you make it do its thing, and you check the output basically. Um, uh, and, and that that's 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 a unit test, taking one unit, testing it in isolation. Now if if that unit um, is in isolation. I mean, if that unit doesn't depend on anything, uh, factorial is, 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 a, is a good, is a good example. You know, the function factorial, you give it a number, it, it, it spits out a number, uh, then perfect, easy. Like tests are like you write the dime a dozen, very easy, very nice, very easy to debug, very easy to write. Uh, but if that component or unit or function or whatever, isn't isolated, and usually they aren't isolated, then you have to somehow deal with the dependencies. It's not only accepting your, you know, your input, but it's also accepting dependencies from other classes, from other functions, from other services, whatever. Uh, not only that, it may be doing like, uh, fetching stuff from the web or, or RPCing to somewhere or reading from a database. It's interacting with lots of, lots of other stuff. And how do you test that? And the answer, there are two answers. Well, uh, uh, the unit test people, the diamond people say, yeah, well, just mock out those dependencies. It accepts, you know, a class that does ABC, then give it a class that does ABC, but not really. I mean, it just, you know, does nothing. And then test whether it was called or not called or, or whatever you need to do to, to make it work. Uh, it's, it's going to a database. Well, mock out that database, make a, a mock database, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's one. And then you have lots and lots of unit tests. And that's great. Uh, but you're not really testing how these two units, how all the units are interacting together. Okay. So you have, you know, a class that, uh, fetches things from the database and, you know, and calculates something. And then you have a class that, 
does the fetching itself from the database. So you're testing class A, you're testing class B, but you're not testing them together. You may be doing assumptions on class A that aren't really happening in class B. You're assuming that class B does A, B does something, but it's not. How do we test them together? That's integration tests. And here the terminology becomes hazy. Some people think of integration tests as, you know, let's test a bunch of classes together or a bunch of functions together. Some people think of integration tests as let's test that we're accessing the database or the, you know, the message queue or the web in, 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 in whatever needs to be. So integration outside of our application. I tend to think of integration as testing a bunch of uh, units together alongside um, the integration to things outside. And the last one is end-to-end. End-to-end is like basically taking the whole thing and run, the whole system, databases, microservices, front-end, whatever, running the whole thing and checking it as a user would. In this case, if we're doing a web app, then you need to run an automation. Uh, you need to run your browser and do automations like navigating to a page, click, 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 edit, type, 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 and checking that the result works. So those are the three main types as I see. And, and as usual, you will probably hear lots of people talking about this differently. So unit integration and end-to-end. Uh, I was talking too much, or can I continue <laughs> with the pyramid? Sorry. Um, I want to know pyramid? what the diamond is. Oh, so to get to the diamond, we have to understand the pyramid. So the idea is that the the, the, the unit is the base, and then uh, integration, and then the end-to-end. The higher you go, the slower the tests are. Unit tests are crazy fast, like in the order of milliseconds or tens of milliseconds. Integrations are like in the order of seconds, tens of seconds. End-to-end are on the order of minutes. So the higher you go, the slower they are. So if you have a thousand unit tests or a thousand end-to-end tests, it's totally different. So what people are saying is have a lot of unit tests, have less integration tests, and have very, very, very few end-to-end tests. So that is the pyramid. The pyramid where the base is a unit, higher is integration, and the tip of the pyramid is the end-to-end test in terms of the number of tests. So that's the pyramid of testing. And it's really, really important. And I think it, it's true in that you don't want your tests to run for hours. That is one thing you do not want to do. You need that instant feedback. I'm clicking my fingers here. That instant feedback uh, that testing gives you so that, you know, after you do some changes, run the tests, after one or two minutes, you know whether you're still working or not. I think that's crazy important. And that is one thing that the pyramid got right. But I believe in the diamond. Uh, <laughs> the diamond is where we have, and I'm doing a diamond, where not a lot of, uh, not a lot of unit tests, a lot of integration tests, and very, very little uh, end. And the reason is that we, can not, we now know how to write very, very fast integration tests that also run on the order of, you know, milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds. So if we have that, we can test a whole bunch of those things together. From my point of view, it's much, much better and gives much more confidence. Now, how to do that, that depends on front end and back end. We can talk about how to do, you know, tests in general, specifically uh, integration and end to end 
on the front end and how to do those on the back end. But my take on it, and I think I'm not the only one. Um, uh, Kent Dodds wrote a wonderful, wonderful blog post. Uh, he, he took, um, he took a quote from Guillermo Rausch. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly called, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful quote. Write tests, not too many, mostly integration. So what, <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. It, it like sums up my philosophy of testing in one quote. It's like, you have to write tests. But don't go overboard. Don't write millions and gazillions of unit tests that, that are testing nothing. And the way to do that is to write mostly integration tests. So write tests, not too many, mostly integration. And you, and Kent Dodds wrote a whole article about blog posts based on that. And it's a must read, really. You go I really and- enjoyed his article on avoiding testing implementation details. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really eye-opening. Um, so Eddie has talked about already in this episode that feeling that you get when you're writing tests that you're not actually testing anything. You're just writing yeah. tests for the sake of it. Uh, can you maybe uh, describe or outline that problem a little bit for anybody that hasn't like written any tests before or are brand new to it? Right. Uh, and it's all the same. It's, it's all viewing the whole unit integration It's from a different angle. Uh, Kent is absolutely right. Think of factorial. Factorial is, is, is perfect. You have one input, you spit one output. You're not checking how factorial is written. You're just checking the function factorial. Factorial is brilliant for unit testing. And you can, you should try and have as many of those as possible. But you can. Most of our code is glucose. It's like connecting everything together. That's most of the code we write, if you like, whether you like it or not. Um, and glue code has lots of dependencies. And what you, people do when writing unit tests is mock a lot of those dependencies. And when you're mocking a lot of those dependencies, you're basically checking if, if the function is glue, is a glue function, you're basically checking that it's calling this and then it's calling that and then it's calling this and then it's calling that. You're, you want to check that those mock dependencies are being called. But if you're doing that, you're basically checking the implementation of that function. You're, if you're mocking everything except for one unit, you're basically checking the implementation of that unit. So you're, you know, you're reading the code of the function uh, or the class and you're saying, oh, it's, it's calling A and then it's calling B and then it's calling C. So I have to check whether it's calling A, calling B and calling C. And that where, that's where the feeling of I'm not checking anything because you're reading the code and just asserting that you wrote it correctly. But you don't know whether what you wrote is right. You just don't. Uh, because only the only thing you write you're checking is that it's calling it in the order the right order but is it really the right order until you collect a lot of those classes together and check them as a whole check them from a user perspective is it doing the right thing is it adding the correct uh, record to the database unless you're not if you're checking that then you can be sure as a whole that the whole thing works Mocking is, from my point of view, uh, a, a test smell. It's not a co-telling smell. It's a test smell. The way to avoid mocking is to test implementation. Now, uh, not to test implementation, to test integration, test the whole thing as a whole. Now, Kent also comes from it from another angle, um, which is if you have a component 
and you want to uh, test it, if the user clicks on this button, then that thing works. This is front-end testing. Then how does the user click on this button? They're not checking the ID of the button. They're not checking the class of the button. They're finding the button based on the text of that button. So Kent wrote a whole uh, uh, library, a React testing library. It's a whole set of libraries, React testing library, DOM testing library, etc. Kent and a lot of others uh, that enable you to find that button based on the text, to find an edit, an edit, uh, you know, an input based on the label, to find a checkbox based on the label, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then you can click it to your heart's content. So that's another way of 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 talking about testing for implementation. Don't look at the class. Don't look at the ID of the button. Look at the, what the user looks at, which is basically the text. So these are two facets of the same thing. Never, well, not never, but try to minimize as much as possible your black box testing, looking inside, figuring out what it, it should be doing and testing that. Just look at it from a user's perspective. How would a user call this? Well, what? how would a user do this? Then do that and check what the user would think is coming up. And that's what Ken was talking about. Right, yeah. Whenever we get into front-end world, like I think a lot of people's first exposure to testing is, of course, unit testing. And so they get some kind of example that's like, okay, you have a function add, and it takes two numbers and it returns, you know, the sum of the two numbers. And they're like, great, perfect. I can write unit tests, no problem. And then they get out into the wild and the first thing they have to do is deal with side yeah. effects. So mm -hmm. this function doesn't actually return anything. It actually manipulates code somewhere else. And so you get into something like React in front end land and then you're just totally lost and you're like, oh my gosh, what do I even test in here? And so Kent... Uh, he had this really brilliant article about implementation details, which kind of outlines what we're talking about, where you've got people that will write tests for like state changes within a component. But really, at the end of the day, as long as the output, like what the user sees, is what we expect, we don't really care what the state is of that component or how it came to have that output. We just want to make sure that it's there. And so you can get into this pattern of testing a ton of stuff that really just has no value for you as the developer because at the end of the day as long as you're getting the output that you want then it doesn't matter how you got there right i, I totally agree and and you know I've, I've seen places where i had two bugs and they canceled one uh, themselves out and, and i it took me a long it, it does happen it took me a long while to find out those bugs because you know if the user doesn't care why should i care so okay i have two bugs there inside and somehow they cancel each other out and then when you do some kind of code change, then boom, one out, out pops one bug. And, and that's fine. And that's fine. Uh, I had a CEO, uh, he said, all software is a harmony of bugs. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favorite uh, visual. You a t-shirt. Uh, that, that would be a good t-shirt. <laughs> Write that would. one down, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so I saw this, this GIF uh, online that was like uh, somebody opening an umbrella. And the umbrella opens and it extends, but then the, the shaft of the umbrella separates. And so the umbrella portion shoots off into the distance <laughs> and the caption on it was all unit tests pass. So <laughs> I thought that was a, that was a really good example of that feeling of like, you know, all of our tests pass, we get the output that we're expecting from all these unit tests, like all the little pieces work, 
but as a whole, the, the program doesn't actually work. So there, there's a lot of philosophy to testing that I certainly wasn't aware of whenever I first learned even what a unit test was without getting into integration and all that. And, and, and you know, um, it's, it's just like writing code. You never get it right the first time. It's, 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 it's something you practice. So the first time you write tests, uh, you know, they'll have some level of value, not too much. And then you, you know, year after year, you continue practicing. Month after month, you continue practicing and you get more and more value and start to figure out how to write those tests. Uh, in the end, it's, you know, it's a path that we, we all have to take ourselves. Oh, God, I'm, got, I'm getting philosophical. Uh, but, but, but it's true. I mean, you can, you can read a lot about it, but in the end, practice, practice, practice. It's, it's the only way. Yeah, so we, we actually got into this whole uh, topic and wanted to talk to, to Gil in the first place because of this talk that he gave on testing uh, React with JSDOM, um, which I thought was really, really great. And again, Thank we'll, you. we'll yeah. definitely link that in the show notes. Um, but I've even seen people come out and have controversy over that, like, oh, you can test with JSDOM, but you're not actually testing the DOM and, and like all this craziness. So um but I think that the really great takeaway from that talk was like not necessarily that you're not actually testing the DOM, but that you can iterate very quickly by, you know, you're changing a version of the DOM or like a, not like a fake DOM, but kind of like a faster, more lighter weight version of the DOM. Yep. Uh, there's this feeling when you start writing tests that you have to cover everything. I mean, it has to be perfect. It's like no. If I don't test on on you know on the browser, then I'm, I'm not really testing. Maybe a, a bug will slip by, and the answer is yeah, a bug will slip by. I'm, I'm I'm you're guaranteed, but it's okay. Bugs will slip by whatever you do. Do not try and not make bugs slip by. You'll 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 catch that bug, or a user catches that bug, or your QA will catch that bug, and you will add a test or. or or whatever. It, it, it's fine. It's fine to have bugs even if you have tests. And that's crazy, crazy, crazy important. So why JSDOM in our browser? Speed, speed, speed. If you're going to write tests that run for hours or minutes or tens of minutes, you've lost. You, 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 you've lost the game. Speed is of the utmost importance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I kind of wanted to, to pivot a little bit into what you're currently working with because I feel like as somebody getting into testing, maybe front-end testing is probably the most complicated you can get because you're working with the browser, you're working with visual elements. Like, that's very difficult to wrap your head around. Mm -hmm. um, but, Gil, you said before that what you're working with now is mostly microservices and Node, correct? Yes. So can you maybe tell us what the heck a microservice is and how you would make <laughs> one with Node? <laughs> Well, it's it's like a service, but really, really small. I'm not joking. Um, <laughs> uh, microservices is actually an architecture. It's saying, look, we can have one big app. I'm talking at the back end part, like a web app, which is you know a million lines of code or a hundred thousand lines of code, and it's perfectly fine. And that is what uh, you know people still do. But we can deal with it in another way. Instead of having this monolith, and now it's called a monolith because of microservices, instead of having this monolith of a million lines of code, we take that 
and we separate it into lots and lots of different small web apps, each doing a tiny little thing, like one microservice dealing with, with authentication, uh, like a set of microservices dealing with billing, a set of microservices uh, dealing with geolocation, another set of microservices dealing, you know, with part of your app itself, like uh, users, another one dealing with, uh, I don't know, if your app is a to-do, has to-do part functionality, then a to-do, etc., etc., etc. So you're building these tens of microservices instead of one big monolith. What do you get from that? Well, it, it's supposed to get you scaling and, you know, um, uh, scaling to millions and billions of users. I don't care about that. And most of us won't write um, code for billions of users. Most of us aren't, you know, Facebook or Google. But what you do get is that in large organizations with like tens of developers and even more, each team can work on a set of microservices and not have to deal with the whole monolith as a whole. And that is very, very important because when you start with an app, it's small, uh, like hundreds and, uh, sorry, thousands and ten thousands of code. And, and, you know, one team can deal with it. But as, as, as soon as it gets larger and larger and larger, you have to deal with scaling the development itself. So that is microservices. But uh, how is it implemented? It's a microservice is really easy. It's like, if you think of a monolith, it's like hundred thousand lines of code, but it's basically a web app. It's accepting HTTP requests from from the front end or from other um, uh, um, uh, entities. Dealing with those requests, uh, if it's querying, then it will query our database. It's, if it's updating a record, then it will update the database. Uh, it can go to other services on the web, like sending SMSs with Twilio or whatever. And, and, you know, and sending back a response. So most web apps are basically web services. And that is exactly what a microservice is. It's just a web app. But it's not dealing with a whole gamut of functionality. It's dealing just with that specific set of functionality that it needs. It's re and, it, and it should be dealing with only that specific, not, not a whole range. So if you're, if, if part of your application is, let's take the to-do idea, then then you have a microservices that knows how to add a to-do, delete a to-do, count to-dos, whatever, blah, 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 blah. That is the only thing. So that is a microservice. Yeah, my uh, my mind immediately jumps to kind of like cloud providers and AWS and Azure and that kind of thing whenever I think about microservices, as in maybe you have like API gateway that directs your traffic and then you've got like Lambda functions or something that's your actual microservice. So uh, you get a request into some endpoint. The endpoint points to what is basically a controller, uh, that Lambda function that runs and does some kind of logic and gives back a response. Uh, yeah, and, and Lambdas are, are uh, you know, a specific type of, of microservice. They're even, you know, what's, what's smaller than micro? Uh, um, there is something smaller than micro. Anyway, so micro microservice, which does one specific function, and and that's brilliant from my point of view. You you can implement microservices using Lambda, and you can implement microservices using, let's say, Docker containers under uh, a Kubernetes cluster that knows how to handle those Docker containers. It's those are the two main architectures. Like if you're starting to write uh, a microservice app today, it's either using Lambda. Or using Kubernetes at, at Apple Tools, we're, we're we're doing we're going the Kubernetes way. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, how does that like what 
I guess how small is that unit of a, of a microservice typically going to be? So it's not just one function like a Lambda. It's bigger than that. So Really small. I mean, as small as you can make it. Uh, so if, if you think about, let's take the to-do, let's go roll with it. So you have add, delete, you know, update, whatever, the regular CRUD, plus maybe, you know, some some level of querying, mark mark is complete, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking in the thousand, thousands line of, 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 of code. It's like not a lot. And that's the beauty uh, of microservices. We're talking a web app with, you know, about five, maybe 10 endpoints, and, and, and that's it. thousand lines of code. Okay. Yeah, I had never thought of them as being, it, it kind of just sounds like a really lightweight uh, Node and Express server kind of thing. It is exactly that. Uh, we started using Express, um, you know, a regular web app using Express. We're, we've now moved to Fastify because we're really cool and Fastify is a really cool <laughs> uh, web server. Uh, it's supposed to be more performant. It's definitely better than Express because it supports async await, you know, uh, uh, natively instead of through various hacks like in, in Express. So it, it really is better. But, but basically there's no difference between Fastify and Express. You just, you know, write a web app using Express, using Fastify, using whatever. You write the endpoints, implement each endpoint. You called it a controller, uh, and, and that's fine. Implement it using, you know, queries or updates to the database or going to Twilio or whatever third-party integration you want, and boom, you have a microservice. It's, it's I mean, it's not complicated. There is, a, well, there's the question of packaging. How do you package that so you're ready? So if it's a Lambda function, uh, then, you know, whatever AWS tells you to do, you do, and you pack it as a Lambda function. If it's, uh, if you're, you're going the Kubernetes way, uh, then you pack it as a Docker container, uh, Docker image, sorry, which is like, again, five lines of, of Docker file. And there you go. You, you have, you have your microservice in a Docker, in a Docker image, and then you just deploy it to Kubernetes. How um how would you handle like databases when you've got microservices involved? Do they all talk to the same database if they need to share data from that, or do they each like need their own data set, or how, how does that architecture typically look? And and that's the big uh, problem, uh, air quotes with 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 the microservices. Microservices, as a rule, should never share data. Uh, each, it, they don't need to have their own database per se, but at least they shouldn't touch each other's tables. So each microservice has, has uh, their own tables. So let's take the to-do example. We will have a to-do, um, a, a to-do table. Nobody is allowed to do, touch that to-do table except for that specific microservice. And the reason is, a microservice if we want the scaling of development to happen and to be real, has to be isolated, has to be self-contained. If people start, if other microservices start reading that database, then boom, they can't migrate that database, they can't change the schema, they can't do anything because they're dependent on the other microservices doing things. If the microservice uses that database uh, only, no problem. The problem, well, why is that a problem? Well, each microservice has their own database. The problem is that if you need, if one microservice needs data from two sets of microservices and they want to join, for example, give me all the users that have a, a to-do 
that contains the word uh, hello, okay, uh, or clean, then boom, you can't do that because you're not allowed to join two separate tables from two separate microservices. So how do you do that? And that's the big question. And, you know, um, the margins of this podcast are not enough uh, to, to, to explain the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that theory. But, 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 you know, there are various ways. And, 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 and in, in the end, if you're going, you know, the no SQL route or whatever, you're, you're anyway not really doing joins and you're anyway uh, uh, doing things like manually on the client or, or whatever. So, yeah. Uh, that's how you connect. And how do you connect in the node code with the database? Well, we use Postgres. So, you know, we just use the library that deals with Postgres and just query it. And the beauty of it is because a microservice is really small, you know, you're not dealing with hundreds of tables. You're dealing with one, two, four tables. Then just query it. Don't use an ORM. Don't use all that re really fancy stuff. Uh, to query the database, just, you know, query it. You have like 10, 15 queries, 20 queries max. Don't go overboard with lots of frameworks and stuff. I, I'm, I'm a simple guy. I mean, uh... <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. I, uh, I have to, I want to move into testing node, but before we get there, uh, because you brought it up, I want to have you try and explain, uh, in simple terms, what an ORM actually is. To oh, that's curious out there. Yeah, ORM is, uh, sorry, uh, object relational mapping. The, the, the relational world of databases where you do joins and everything is, is, is based on tables, right? Uh, so you have a table of users, a table of, uh, to do's, table of comments, whatever, and you start joining them with SQL. That's a relation, that's a relational world. That's one world. But our world, uh, in, in the software, in, in JavaScript or, or Java or whatever is more object based. We're, we're thinking of a to do and its comments, not of a to do and comments and joining the two together. So how do you map between the object world of JavaScript and the relational world of, uh, of, of, of databases? And one answer, which I have to admit I do not like, I, I used to like. Uh, is ORMs, object relational mappers. It's where you specify, see this object, this object, this field is coming from that database, this field is coming from that database, et cetera, et cetera, and this is how you join things, et cetera. And, you know, you have this whole meta language which enables you to connect these two worlds together. Not a fan. Yeah, it's, uh, from my understanding, I've used SQLize and I'm kind of torn over it. I, I like it, but I also hate it. Uh, and basically it, you know, you give it some JavaScript and it generates a whole bunch of SQL, right. That then queries your database for you. Um, but you can really easily shoot yourself in the foot because you write a couple of lines of JavaScript, but it generates like paragraphs of SQL commands. And, uh, as a beginner, like I locked up my database for like 15 <laughs> seconds on a single query because it chained <laughs> together so much crap. So, and and um, you and you find that out only in production because your test co test data is like you know 10, 10, 10 records no exactly. problem there yep yeah so you deploy it and you're like why does my site take 30 seconds to load what's going on and it's because <laughs> you know it's it's querying this database and the, the poor thing's chugging along but uh yeah um that that's another whole episode right whole yep. whole another uh, can of worms yep. so the specific can of worms that we want to talk about is how do you test node and like, what's the, the easy way to, to get into that, I guess? 
So what kind of frameworks do you use and tooling and, and all that good stuff? And again, I'm on the simple side. Uh, first of all, frameworks. Uh, you need a test runner. And, and JavaScript, the JavaScript ecosystem is, is, uh, is blessed with a lot of them. The two big ones today are Mocha, which I use. Hi, Mocha. Great, great work. And, uh, and Jest, which is wonderful. I just don't use it. Um, <laughs> bo- bo- both are really similar. Jest is more like everything, including the kitchen sink. And Mocha is like, I'm, I'm minimal. And if you want some, we have lots and lots of plugins. Well, whichever, you know, it's a, it's a style thing. Uh, but they're basically similar. They enable you to, to, to run tests, assert things like check that the length of the array is this and this and group the things together and, you know, to run only these tests or run only those tests, et cetera, et cetera. That's the runner. Mocha just, you won't, you won't fail with either of them. Uh, Basically, testing a no, and let's, let's talk about no, no, unit tests are easy. You just, you know, require, the, the module, uh, which exports a function or a class. You do a new class or, or call the function, give it input, check, exp- you know, assert that the result is what you expected. You're done. Um, it's really easy. It's like function add. Uh, all, all tutorials on testing deal with that. But how do you test a microservice? How do you do integration tests? And, and my method is really, really simple. What I do is I require the, uh, the, the main module of my microservice, which is basic, which basically exports an express app or a fastify app. An express app is the thing that you, you're going to listen to in a second. You're going to run in a second. I require that using, you know, Node.js require import. And then I make it listen and, and, and start. I start the server again using code, not using command line, just using code. Once it listens on a specific port, let's say port, you know, 80, uh, I do what, what, whatever the microservice, I, I test it as a user would. In this case, it's backend. So a user is, is like HTTPing. Uh, so I just HTTP and I'll talk in a second how, uh, let's say I have a slash query to do endpoint, which returns the list of to do's and I have slash add to do. So I do slash, I, I post an HTTP request to slash add to do give it the JSON of the to-dos, and then I query to-do and check that I have only one to-do added to that. It's it's that simple. Two HTTP requests, one to add a to-do and one to query a to-do, and that test is a uh, test that, uh, you know, add to-do works or whatever. Add to-do adds one to-do or, or whatever you're testing. And, and again, I really, really try to be simple. So... It's just in the setup, in the before of the tests, I run the, the server using require and, and, you know, listening on a port. And then I HTTP whatever requests I need to check whatever I need. Um, and how do I HTTP? Uh, again, we're blessed with so many HTTP clients. Uh, Axios. I use NodeFetch. Uh, Needle. Uh, there's something with W, which I don't remember. Really, really good. Just don't use request, please. Request is horrible. Uh, so, I'm sorry. It's, it's not horrible. It was great for its time, but even Michael Jackson, the, the, the maintainer of a request is requested to stop using it, I think. <laughs> um, so node fetch, uh, needle, uh, W something. 
uh, Axios, go for it. Just use those as HTTP clients, post whatever requests you need, query using whatever requests you need, and you've tested the microservice. It's not that simple, obviously, but, you know, I need time to breathe. So, okay. Uh, the first question I would have then would be, it sounds like this microservice is interacting with a database. Ah. So mm. what, how do you mock the data from the database? Or are you spinning up a test database? Um, how okay. do you handle that? Which, which was where things get complicated. I mean, if, if the microservice is like, you know, uh, free of dependencies, then we're done, which is what I described. But what happens if I have a database? Let's ignore for a second the test data. Let's talk about how do I spin up a database? For me, the answer is really, really simple. Uh, Docker. Docker is there and it's wonderful. And spinning up a database is as simple as Docker run and Postgres. It's, it's that easy. And if you need to run more than one database, let's say a database and a, sorry, in a message queue, then use Docker Compose to run them all. Uh, it's, 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 it's basically all there is to it. Um, once you have that database, now comes the question of, of, of seeding the database with data. Uh, I've seen so many uh, uh, ways to do that, bringing data from production, which I'm not a big fan, uh, seeding it using, uh, you know, uh, you can give a database just a file and, and, and boom, you have the database, or just creating SQL statements that insert mock data into the database. I'm, I'm a fan of whether SQL or whatever, just generating that mock data uh, or starting from scratch, your, your call. No, please, uh, just if you're running, like uh, we, we checked with Postgres, we're using Postgres, so we're running Postgres in Docker, and it's so crazy because it's not really using the disk. Postgres uh, is will mostly use memory. So those queries and those updates are like milliseconds in, 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 in time, really, really, really fast. So it's okay to just create that mock data and, you know, once and, and, and be done with it. Okay. Yeah. So I guess from a novice perspective, I would think like maybe you could, if you didn't want to seed the database, maybe you would run like your tests that generate data first and then make sure those pass and then run tests after that, that manipulate that data or update it or delete it. And then kind of like, as you're testing, uh, run through all those operations and kind of seed as you go. Exactly. And, 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 and in both in Jest and in Mocha and in, all, in most of the test frameworks I have, you have this before and after stuff. So in before you can write whatever code you need that runs before all the tests or you have before each, before each test. So that is where you can put all your, uh, uh, SQL, uh, code that generates that test data and after just deletes uh, all, all of that test code or or ignores it completely uh, depends on you but i think before and after is the best way that also enables you to keep the tests independent of one another and the reason you want that independence is sometimes you don't want to run all the tests you have a bug in one test or one test found a bug you want to run only that test it happens a lot most of the time I, I want to run only one test, so I want the tests to be as independent as possible from each other. Yeah, it makes them a slightly bit slower, but that's fine. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's it's interesting to hear you say that um, you would basically create uh, your own like separate testing database using Docker and just kind of spin up an environment for that. Um, I've heard uh, a thousand different ways of how to handle that, like mock the data. You know, you, you kind of went through a lot of them. Um, use production data and copy it over or something crazy. Um, I, I guess the trade-off would be like your version would be incredibly fast. Um, but at the same time, like maybe you would have to seed it with thousands of records to maybe emulate the kind of load that you would be working with in production. But is that really an issue or do you think scale at that point is not really a problem? Uh, and again, uh, right like those tens and hundreds of tests that you need with, with not, with not, you know, thousands of records and then have one separate test that, you know, loads a lot of them and, and, uh, and, uh, and queries just to make sure. Just write one test that makes sure that if you run, and even that, I mean, I let, I know it's horrible, but I let production guide me. So, I start with a simple suite of tests and then I, you know, I deploy to production and then I find problems, you know, uh, in the beginning, there are always problems. And those lead me to say, Oh, wait, in the to do's, not a problem with this is simple queries. No need to load test them. But here I have this really, really complex join. I should load test that because I've seen problems in production around that area. So let production guide you, let the user guide you, let the bugs guide you where you need to focus your tests on. So that kind of goes back to write tests, not a lot. <laughs> Mostly integration. Mostly integration. Woo! <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. Um, I think I've only messed with, uh, I think it's called super test and like super agent or something like that in Node. Um, and I think that those are more in line with uh, that node fetch library that you were, you were talking about. Yep. Um, so the, the workflow for that is, um, basically you're spinning up a, an instance of your node server, and then you fire off requests to that instance through those libraries. Correct. Yep. Okay. I, I, exactly. Uh, Whichever way you want to fire off those requests, whether it's using super agent or just, you know, calling node fetch, um, uh, fine by me. I'm, I'm not, a um, I, I'm not religious. <laughs> I try not to be, um, oh, except, you know, concerning God, but you know, this isn't, <laughs> uh, although, you know, some people think it is for some reason, uh, node fetch, axios, super fetch, super agent. All good. Uh, please test. Please test. Whichever way you like. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we did a live stream a little while back um, where we were testing out a, a friend's. Uh, he basically built a microservice for work with Node, and um, he only had like three or four endpoints in it. And so we brought in some test suites, and we we're like, "Hey, let's give this a try." And we found out um, basically as he was writing the test for his application. He was like, oh, man, I don't even know what I'm testing. I think I need to refactor this. <laughs> so he would have things like one endpoint that you would hit it, and it would kick off a side effect that would process something somewhere else and make like uh, do some file system changes or something, and it would just return a 200 immediately. So like, okay, great. How do we test this? Okay, mm -hmm. I hit the endpoint. It returns a 200. Great. What about all the other stuff that it's doing? How do we actually test that? So it... it it was very yeah. interesting to see like he would 
as he was writing the test, realize, wow, I did some really crazy stuff when I was writing the code originally. T- tests point out sometimes um, things you did wrong or, you know, uh, they, they point out where you need to refactor, definitely. Uh, by the way, if those files were created and nobody cares, then, then that's fine. But if, you, if, if somebody cares about those files, then there's probably another query that checks those files. Then, you know, do that uh, HTTP call, generate those files, and then have the other HTTP call figure out whether those files are there or not. I mean, th- th- there has to be some way of, of you know, checking whether that first call succeeded. If there's no way to check that, then, you know, it might as well not have happened because there's no side effect. It was was a weird microservice that, uh, this is kind of like implementation detail, but it would, you'd hit an endpoint with some data and then it would take that data and generate like an email file and then send off an email to some uh, list of addresses. So it was like, holy smokes, how are we going to test that? Like, okay, great, you hit the endpoint. The endpoint is receiving data. Okay, it returns a 200, but then what, are you going to, like, catch an email file and run a test against that, like, that output? Or that that's kind yeah. of wrapping back around into front-end land. Like, you're going to test the HTML email output of, of this. That's kind of crazy. So, Yeah, well, databases are easy. If you, Once you get to message queues and emails, that's where the hard things are. But remember, your first test that does message queues and does email testing, that's the hardest. It'll take you like a day or two. And then the others will already be using that infrastructure. So you're good to go. And then you'll be pumping out those tests easy. But the first test that does something new, that's tough. But you need to toughen and, you know, and do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, any any words of wisdom for people out there that are just kind of never done testing? They don't think there's value in it. They're like, oh, my code's on production already. Uh, you know, why do I need to sit down and write tests? Like that's time spent. We could be making other features. On and on and on. Ah, uh, well, good for them. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> If it works for them, you know, I'm not religious, I told you. But um, the the way I approach it is is different. Um, I, 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 I had a, uh, well, it wasn't a keynote, but I, I had a talk uh, about a month ago. I called it ego programophobia. Uh, it's it's fear of one's own code. Okay. It's, it's like when you're changing your code, you have, you have this uh, sense of fear in you. Now, most people don't recognize it because, you know, they're not connected to their feelings, at least not when coding, you know, when you're talking to your boyfriend or girlfriend, sure, but when coding, well, what do you mean fear? I don't have any emotions. I'm, I'm like a robot. But you do. You fear changes. And once you find that out, once you figure that out, and, and you sense that fear and you know that if you need to fix a bug, you're not fixing it in the correct way because that means refactoring a lot of code, but you're just, you know, doing these little itsy buggy, really bad changes because you're fearing that code. And now slowly your code becomes more and more spaghetti. And that is not because you're not a good developer. You are, you know how to do that, but you're, you have a fear of your own code. You have ego programophobia. And that is where testing comes in, not in finding bugs. I don't care about bugs. I care about the ability to change my code without fearing anything. 
no fear whatsoever. And the way that I do that is I never run my code local. Uh, especially, this is great for backend, less for frontend. I, I, if I write a feature, I write a feature, and then I write tests for it. And that is the only way uh, I, I run the code locally, just by writing tests for it. I write the feature, write the tests, deploy to production. And that is much better than writing the feature, running the tests, running, you know, manually, running lots more tests because you're afraid you've, uh, you, 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 you know, you, you messed up something and then deploying to production. I find, you know, using testing makes me calm, makes me sleep at night. And, you know, if you want to live on the edge, you know, with fear in your heart all the time, then yeah, do manual testing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. Um, I've, become more i guess amicable to the testing idea as i've gotten more experience in development but it's always funny to come across people that are like nope never done it been doing programming for years and years and years and i just don't write tests not worried <laughs> it's it's kind of mind-blowing a little bit and, and you know I'm, I'm going on about oh if you're not doing tests you're not you're not doing it right and, and that is wrong i mean it, it's hard starting but start slow practice and over the months over the years you will get there but you need to start and, and for me the best way to start is write an end-to-end -end test run your whole app run browser automation like using cypress or whatever and test the whole app as a whole then you will get some level of confidence that and you can begin to start writing the unit and the integration more and more yep. that that's the way i uh, i approach it uh, if people ask me Great. Um, at the end of every show, we have a little segment we call Nerd Minute, where we just talk about like uh, any movies we've seen or books or video games we played, uh, comics, and it could be anything. So, uh, Gil, is there anything that you've uh, done outside of work recently that uh, you, you've really liked and want to talk about? Uh, two things, um, and, and they're connected. So I've been re-watching two things like, in parallel. One is uh, Rick and Morty. Um, <laughs> oh, huge seasons. fan. Huge, huge, huge. I, I started by not liking it so much and, and then I got into it. It's like nonsense and weird and you're not, you're not, you know, they're throwing curve, curve balls at you and you're not knowing where it's coming from. And on the other spectrum, this is like 2017, 2018, 2018, 2017. Uh, and then, and then, uh, on the other side is, is something that is coming from the sixties. We're talking Monty Python. I'm, I'm, there's, it's wow. on Netflix now. I'm doing the <laughs> whole thing. And it's amazing. You can see the inf you just can see the influence. I mean, it's really weird and it's awkward and it's the sixties and it's just the whole starting of the nonsense, nonsense comedy. So, you know, it's not fully baked there yet, but it's amazing to see the two in parallel because you can see the connections all the time. So yeah, Monty Python, Rick and Morty, go for it. Yeah, uh, I'm cool. a huge Rick and Morty fan. Yeah, um, I think it's visually interesting just because there's so much like craziness and space travel and weird science and stuff. But also like it has this existential undertone to it of like uh, Rick kind of coping with his massive intellect and kind of like, you know, him versus uh, the universe and chaos and all that. So uh, it's a it's a really like if you want to view it with that lens, it can have kind of deeper meanings to it than just a silly cartoon show. Yeah. Um, as far as, uh, as Monty Python, um, 
what uh is that a series or i've only really been familiar with uh the holy grail movie yep uh, there are movies the holy grail and brian brian's life is are the best known well most most known but i was talking specifically about monty python's flying circus which is how they started it's a tv series it's like three three uh three series like 12 episodes each um, a, a lot of boring stuff, but amazing <laughs> things like you know uh, the parrot sketch and uh, the crazy walk sketch, and a lot of that, that uh, was the first thing classics. that came to mind was the the Ministry of Funny Walks or whatever it is. Where <laughs> exactly, the guys like twirling oh, around and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's endless, endless fun, and not not just fun from a historical perspective. You you see that they were all there. I mean, they 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 were the first. Definitely. Cool. Um, Eddie, anything that you're into recently? Um, I think since the last time we talked, I've seen Spider-Man. Uh, Far from uh, Gil, are you a fan of uh, Marvel movies or the Avengers or anything like that? I decided Avengers Endgame is going to be the last. They're not getting any more money out of me. <laughs> 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 but but I did see the whole thing, you know, the whole uh, leading up to it. So they got a lot, uh, a lot, of, a lot from me. But you're done with it. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Swan song. Uh, the end is the end. Um, exactly. Was uh, was Spider Man any good? I, I haven't seen it, it yet. It was great. It was a good follow up to Endgame. So if you <laughs> do decide to like ever watch. No, it, no, it, don't tell. <laughs> he's trying to sell you on it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it was really good. Um, it's a little sad at some points, but uh, it, it was good. Ends really well. They did a really good job with um, Mysterio. And uh, the reason he's a bad guy uh, ties into the rest of the Marvel universe pretty well, too. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I've never read too much about Mysterio in the original, like, Spider-Man comics or anything. So I was just knew that he's a Spider-Man villain. So yeah, uh, I think in the comics he's like a special effects like guy in the movies or whatever, and that's where he from the future right or something crazy like that that i don't know but i know he used to be like a special effects guy which is why he does all the like stuff that he does in the comics but in this it's more tech oriented and uh there's a lot of stuff that ties into like one of the other um avenger movies okay so, cool pretty cool yeah they did a good job yeah i haven't uh haven't seen it yet was hoping to go out and see it in theaters. I don't know if it's still in theaters, but uh, I think it is. I saw it pretty late, like two or three weeks after it came out. Okay. You can come to Israel; it's still here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. Gosh, if I can afford the plane ticket. <laughs> yeah. You have my Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will definitely hit you up if I ever uh, make it that way. Um, all right, great. Um, thank you so much, Gil, for for joining us on the show and and spending some time talking about testing and, and Node and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks. Uh, where where can we find you online? And do you have anything that you want to plug while you're on the show? Uh, yep. Um, online, I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, Gil Tayar, G I L T A Y A R is my handle. Uh, please follow. Uh, please uh, DM. My DMs are open. Any questions on testing, I'd I'd love to answer. Um, a plug. Apple tools, visual testing, go. I mean, it's amazing. If you're a front-end person and you finally, and you want to test your CSS, uh, do that. Uh, and I have a CSS conf talk uh, about, exactly about testing CSS. Uh, please, please watch that. And that's cool. It. 
we will uh we'll definitely include that talk and the JSOM talk and um is that fear of your own code talk uh available online or i'd love to but it's it well it's available online bad sound and it's in hebrew <laughs> ah, probably won't help our, uh, our yeah. listenership. No. <laughs> we will. We will definitely link the other ones though uh, on the on the show notes. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Gil. And uh, thanks. Thank you. I had a lovely time. Thank. We did as well. Yeah. And we will. Uh, we will see you around on the internet. Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Head on over to our site at techjr.dev for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, click subscribe to get an email from us once a week with the latest episode and some other goodies. Also, please follow us on Twitter at techjrpodcast. Uh, you can also follow my personal account at Junior and Eddie's at ed0ter0. We also have an email address if you want to shoot us some questions. You can find that on the show's about page. And that email address is techjrpodcast at gmail.com. So write us and uh, we will write you back or put your show on the episode. Uh, in any case, join us next week. We, uh, we have Kurt Kempel on the show. Kurt is a developer advocate for uh, AWS. And we get into some really awesome uh, discussion with Kurt about not only that, but his, uh, his path into development. And I think it's going to help some people out there. Uh, So definitely join us for that episode. All right. That's all for me. Take care.